If you've been with us in the past few weeks, you'll know that we've started a new series in the book of Hebrews, this letter that sounds like a sermon, uh, that as you read it, you can hear the writer speaking uh, to the people that he is addressing. And today, I've just uh, entitled this talk, The Danger of Drifting. We don't know the author of Hebrews. We don't know who it's addressed to. We don't know whether that was for safety reasons, because persecution was stepping up, not only from the empire and Rome, but also from the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. And the church was being squeezed in so many different directions. And we get this feeling that as the writer uh, gives this message to the Hebrews, um, that people were tired and weary. And maybe some were asking the question, is it worth it? Weren't we better off before? Sound familiar? Moses leading the people. But the writer gets straight in and uh, some of my favorite verses are the description of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 when he just exalts Jesus. And we're, we're venturing out of chapter 1 today. We've been in chapter 1 for a little while, but we're venturing out of chapter 1. But he keeps reminding us through this message to keep our eyes on Jesus. In chapter 12, verse 2, that we'll get to in a couple of years' time, <laughs> he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's how we are strengthened in our faith. It's when we look around that things begin to wobble. But when we look at him, we are secure. So from Hebrews chapter 2, just uh, the first four verses, and I'm focusing really on the first verse, but we'll read the first four verses together. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. It contains a warning. And these days, practically everything you buy seems to carry some kind of warning on it. I don't know if you've noticed that. Some of these seem totally unnecessary and ridiculous. For example, you will know this one on a bag of peanuts. The warning is, contains nuts. <laughs> on a Superman costume, the warning is, this costume does not enable you to fly. It's very important. On a nighttime sleep aid, which I think is great, the warning may, may cause drowsiness. Yeah. That's why I've bought it. Not that it may cause drowsiness. I want it to cause drowsiness. There you go. On a baby's pushchair warning, remove baby before folding. Always important. And the strange one on a microwave oven, warning, do not use for drying your pets. 
Not all warnings are silly, though. Some are really important and we need to take seriously. On a foggy day, on the 13th of March, 1991, there was one of Britain's worst road accidents. Ten people died and 25 were injured in a crash on the M4 motorway. But it would have been so much worse had it not been for a man called Alan Bateman who got out of his car in the midst of it and ran down the motorway, waving his arms and warning people to slow down. And some people heeded his warning and slowed their cars. Others just thought, what's this mad guy doing? And just drove straight into the crash. God loves us so much and the Bible is full of his love, but it also contains some warnings. And in our passage that we read today, there was one of the many warnings in this letter. Pay careful attention to what you have heard, therefore, so that you do not drift away. And chapter 2 opens up in a very different way to chapter 1. Chapter 1, the focus was on the supremacy of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus Christ far above all things, above all angelic beings, whether they be angels or demons, he is above them all. And the writer directs his gaze now to ourselves and our response but asks us to hold on to the vision that we have seen and what we have heard, especially when times are tough and things were getting tough for the believers everywhere. And it's as if these verses at the beginning of chapter 2 are just an aside where he directs our gaze back to earthly matters just for a moment. So he's been urging them to look up and see Jesus. Now he asks them to look around and to examine themselves and to be awake to the danger of drifting. It's as if he pauses just in this moment as he's speaking, as some preachers do, and just say, are you with me? Before he launches into the next section, which will include a focus on the humanity of Jesus. And especially his suffering and his death. It's almost as if the writer here is like a tour guide about to take a group of pilgrims through a threatening part of town. And he warns them to stay together, listen carefully, hold on to the truth. Because things could get a little rough, a little scary. So where's the danger? What's so dangerous about the Jesus story about his humanity. I think the danger lies in the fact that the incarnation story of Jesus becoming a human being, taken out of context, could be seen as a discouraging story of bitter defeat. Do you remember the two disciples walking away from Jerusalem after Jesus had died? And he meets them on the road. But they say, it's not what we had hoped. It's all fallen apart. Jesus has died. And they don't yet recognize him. You see, without the cosmic story, and I found this illustration helpful. I don't know if you will, but sometimes I find drawings helpful. Can we have that up on the screen? Here you have the story of 
heaven and earth. Okay, and there's a line splitting the two. We know that Jesus has come from heaven. He is the creator of all things. But then he comes to earth. And he suffers and he dies. But if we did not know the first bit, if all we knew was what happened on earth, and we didn't know the other bit, that he was resurrected and reigning and returning, if all we had was the bottom bit, it would look like a failure. We had hoped that he was the Messiah, but he's dead. Taken on its own, the earthly story of Jesus can be seen as tragic, even embarrassing. What kind of Messiah is this? Crying out on a cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The cross of Jesus was and still is considered foolishness to some. And a stumbling block to others. Paul wrote of that in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. And foolishness to Gentiles. And the Christian life. Can seem like that too. Without the heavenly perspective. Nearly 300 million Christians worldwide are facing high or extreme levels of persecution. Believers in North Korea face the most difficult persecution. You know the sort of one in seven around the world of Christians are persecuted. And then it's sort of Africa, it's one in five. And Asia, one in three. In North Korea, it's one in one. And if you look at their life of faith on earth, it is so hard. If you're discovered, the fear of being discovered. I was only there a few days and I remember the fear of being discovered that they knew everything about me. Would they let me out of the country? Imagine that level of fear. Unless you know the cosmic story of Jesus. Without that eternal and heavenly dimension, it might seem futile. There might be a temptation to say, is it worth it? And even for us, things are not always easy. We face sickness and death and difficulties abound. We've been praying about the birth pains in our world of wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes And sometimes you can say, is it worth it? And the writer to the Hebrews, that's why he begins with chapter 1 and says, he is worth it. And he has overcome the world and he is coming soon. If you lose that perspective, then you might fall away and drift. Therefore, You know it's always important when there's a therefore in the message. Bearing in mind what's been said before, in the light of who Jesus is, he is encouraging the believers to hold on to the message. 
and that this may make a difference in our everyday lives. Not a passive holding on of a sort of nodding to the truth of who Jesus is, but a desperate holding on to Jesus. An active laying hold of him day in, day out, because we need him. Otherwise, there's a danger of drifting. And this image of drifting is, is an especially potent one. It could signify different things, objects that just slip away, like driftwood in a river. Or of water which just leaks from a faulty or cracked jar, just, just ebbs away. Or perhaps the image closest to the author's intention is of a boat drifting Missing its intended harbor because of the strong currents or winds. Imagine for a moment being in a little motorboat some way off from shore, needing to find your way along the coast to the right harbor. You need to keep the engine running. You need a firm hand on the tiller. If you don't, there's a danger that you will just drift in the wrong direction. If we do not pay careful attention to what we have heard. That's what he says. To the truth. Otherwise we allow truths to be lost. You know I love Lord of the Rings. I love the beginning of it. And that quote. That some things that should not have been forgotten were lost. And history became legend. And legend became myth. Such an inspired writer was Tolkien. That that is true of the church down through all the centuries. Unless we pay careful attention, we can get blown along by the currents or wind that just seems to be happening on that day or in that generation. So keep close to Jesus, keep our eyes on him. Don't know if you've been catching up with The Chosen. I have, it's amazing, wonderful. If you haven't watched it, do watch it. But we had the story of Peter walking on the water. No spoiler alert, you know what happens. But, but just the way that it's depicted of how as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was walking on the water. And then, fear as he looked around in the winds and the waves, and he sank, and Jesus saves him. The warning. Keep a hold of the truth of what you have heard. And then there's a sort of contrast with the law that was given through angels. It's interesting, we don't understand probably this connection, the law that Moses received um, Paul describes in Galatians 3.19, the law was given through angels and entrusted to mediators. It was common thought that the law was mediated in that way. And we can't keep the law. Because none of us was perfect except the one person who put their hand up at the beginning at Verity's thing. I mean, we want to see you afterwards because that's amazing. And every violation receives its due punishment. And in that sense, the sacrifices to pay for sins. If you're going through your Bible in a year, and I'm in Leviticus right now, I'm reading all about it. If the old covenant was binding, he says, how much more 
if we drift away from the new. The message we receive from the Lord Jesus himself has been passed on by eyewitnesses and tested by signs and wonders and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? In almost every period of Christian history, there have been those who have sought to substitute the message. But there is no substitute for the gospel of God's love for us and the grace that he has lavished upon us that it's not about what we do, but what Christ has done for us and faith in him alone. We preach Christ crucified. This is the great salvation. Yet he sees those, particularly Jewish believers, on the brink of making that foolish decision of going back, drifting away from the truth, bearing in mind they are being persecuted from both sides, from Jerusalem by the Jewish authorities, by Rome through the empire. They may have thought, if we return to the safety of the synagogue and the Jews, they will welcome us back as friends and the Romans will accept us as adherents of an official religion tolerated in the Roman Empire. And the writer says, that's not a lifeboat you want to get into because it will not save. You may be safe for a while, but you will not be saved. I'm not even sure that the Jews would welcome them back. They were seen as traitors. And synagogue Judaism is not just a different kind of Christianity. It is no Christianity at all. The Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus and insisted on his death, yes, Pilate and the Romans carried it out. It was that early, church, early Jewish intention to wipe out the church. The Apostle Paul sent to arrest believers in Damascus when he met with Jesus. The writer here says, you need to cut loose every other so-called lifeboat and cling to Jesus. The gospel the only true ship of salvation. Let us not love safety at the cost of our souls. Easy for us to say. But the testimony of all our persecuted brothers and sisters is they do not, in reading from Revelation, they triumphed over the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. How might this apply to us today? We're not persecuted in that way, not in the physical sense. We're not under threat by coming into this building. Yes, they've got our car registration numbers, but I think we're safe in that sense. But we are pursued by an enemy. Make no mistake that persecution is all believers in different ways. Some of the enemy's tactics are more subtle very few of us would be tempted to return to another religion. If you've been saved out of another religion, very few of us would be tempted to go back because nothing compares with Jesus. 
We know religion in itself is empty. It's man-made. There's always the danger of forgetting grace, though. The church in every generation needs to be reminded of grace. Have you noticed that? Whether it be a reformation on a huge scale, because the church has just completely lost its way, or the charismatic movement in the 70s, or whatever it is, we need to keep being reminded of the grace of God. Otherwise, we fall back on law again, earning our salvation, thinking we have to be good enough. We're not good enough. We can never be good enough. Receive the grace of God. It liberates you. It sets you free. It makes it more about ourselves than about what Jesus has done. For others, it may be a different challenge. We've forgotten to read our Bibles. What happens when we forget to read our Bibles is that we let go of truth. And other truths may emerge that seem persuasive, but they're not what's in the book. Or our prayer life. Or for me, as I grew up in a Christian home, I knew about Jesus. I knew, but it meant nothing to me. Only when I was 19, when I had an encounter with Jesus, and he changed my life. But I know the danger of growing up in a Christian home where you just drift along with it. It's my parents' faith. And then you leave home, and all the pressures that come. And that's why we pray for our young people. Not just when they're tiny tots, but as we pray when they go to university and beyond. Because the pressures will come upon them. They need an encounter with the living God that will hold them. You can't survive on someone else's faith. There's a danger of drifting. Or if our commitment to the local church wanes. I know you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. I know that. I've met lots of people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Church, and, and for valid reasons, church put them off, and we're sorry about that. If church ever puts you off Jesus, we're doing it wrong. But there's something about belonging to the people of God, expressed in a local environment. There is nothing like coming together and worshiping God together in the presence of the Holy Spirit and Him moving in our midst. I love watching the greatest preachers on earth on telly. I love watching the greatest worship bands on earth on telly. But it is not the same. I love coming here and worshipping with you and encouraging one another to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's nothing like it. You can be part of the E family of some mega church somewhere. But you are not known and you are not loved. Not in that sense. That when things happen, you are surrounded by love and prayer. We know you by name and we know you by heart. I'm a bit passionate about a local church. The family of God. I don't know many 
And there are some, so there are an exception. I don't know many Christians who are not part of the local family of God somewhere that are stronger for it. And the other thing that we do when you come, we encourage one another. Imagine if there was just Hermione Edward here on a Sunday morning. We'd be a bit lonely. Alan would come maybe and Jackie. And, but how encouraging it is that we're here together. And we're not here passively, are we? We're here on a mission. We're here to proclaim the gospel to the world. What we do here overflows in our week. Yes, you can be here just for the ride or for the nice lunch you get if you're a newcomer. Others can do the praying. Others can serve on rotors. I'm, I'm just here to soak it up. That's okay as well. But if we all did that, he's asking, have you got your motor running? Because if you're not, you could drift. Are we longing for more? Are we wanting more? Are we hearing of revivals around the world where God's moving in amazing ways? And are you saying, bless that Lord and do it here? Please. Wanting to live our lives for Jesus. Prepared if it needs to be to give our lives for Jesus. That's a tricky one unless it comes. You don't, we don't know the answer to that unless it comes. Believe God gives us what we need when we need it. And that writer's central contrast of the passage here is between the law of Moses given through angels and mediators. And he contrasts it to the Lord Jesus, this great salvation. How special it is to know Jesus. What a privilege to know Jesus. Hermie and I were once invited to the palace for a garden party. You know this. We had a letter from the palace. didn't come from Queen Elizabeth. came from some bloke, the Lord Chamberlain. I don't know who he was. But it got our attention. Imagine, imagine, I mean, imagine just for a moment that actually there was a knock on the door and Queen Elizabeth was there and said, would you come to my garden party? I would, Hermie would be blown away. That's the contrast. The king has come for you. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, he has come for you. He died for you. What a great salvation. How could we neglect that? How could we drift away from that? And the early believers knew it came with power. And when they believed the message, they discovered this strange energy inside themselves, this warm, disturbing personal presence that they realized was the Holy Spirit within them that motivated them for mission to go into the whole world. So as we come this morning to worship Jesus, Let's come with that intention that we want more. We want to know him more. We want to see God move more in our midst, in our lives, in our community for his glory. Amen.
Let's pray and we'll worship together. Would you join me in standing as we just pray together?